Welcome to On the Move, a podcast that explores the realities of migrants and refugees across the Middle East. On the Move is produced by BCARS, the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies. Hi, everyone. My name is Dennis Sullivan. I'm a professor at Northeastern University, and welcome to the BCARS podcast. Joining me on this inaugural podcast for BCARS is my dear friend, Dr. Amira Mohammed. Hi, Amira. Say hi. Hi, Dennis. Hello, everybody. Um, so good to be here in this first initial podcast of BCARS. Yeah. And what is, what is BCARS? BCARS is the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies. That's why we call it BCARS. The name's too long. What we mean by BCARS uh, and what we mean by the consortium is that uh, while we are based in Boston, uh, we actually, uh, and we have a number of schools, universities uh, around the Boston area, uh, Boston University, Boston College, UMass Boston, Tufts and Fletcher, Harvard, Northeastern, um, we're a network of scholars and practitioners that come together and work with our colleagues um, in uh, Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Egypt, um, and elsewhere, actually. Uh, we'll tell you more about that. But um, BCARS is, uh, is, has been around uh, on the planet for about four years, thanks to the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And uh, we're going to tell you more about that. Uh, but we're here to start this podcast because we just got back from Cairo, Amira and I, and, and mo- many of our colleagues. We were in Cairo um, a couple weeks ago uh, for a workshop or conference on uh, burden sharing on the refugee crisis, as it's known. Uh, some of us dispute whether it's a crisis uh, or a challenge. Uh, but it's a conference on responsibility sharing for Syrian refugees in particular uh, between um, the Middle East and across the Mediterranean and into the heart of Europe. So that conference uh, brought together UN officials, Egyptian, American, European, uh, Jordanian, uh, Lebanese, uh, Sudanese, uh, the world community basically coming together to share ideas, share best practices, and come up with some action steps that we can put into the mix, uh, hoping to influence policy in Europe, uh, in the UN system, and with individual countries uh, and individual governments around the Middle East. Do I have that right, Amira? Is that yes, about right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We had also migrants and refugees sitting with us in different capacities. They were par- members of the migrants community, but they were also practitioners. Work refugees working with refugees, so that was also a good thing about the conference. Yeah, no, it's always important, and that's really that's why B cars actually came into being. Uh, the whole point of B cars has br- been to bring academics and practitioners, uh, policymakers, together. And w- over the last four years, we've done um, we've looked at different aspects of the post Arab Spring, quote unquote, uh, post Arab Spring. Uh, region of the of the Arab world uh, and looking at various issues, uh, but in the past two, three years now, uh, we've really focused on the Syrian refugee crisis and the impact on Jordan, on Lebanon, on Turkey, on um, and now increasingly into Europe uh, through the Balkans, uh, through Serbia, uh, through Greece, actually starting and then into Macedonia and Serbia and on into the rest of Europe. So that's what we've been doing. We've been holding workshops um, in Thessaloniki, in Amman, Jordan, uh, in Istanbul, in Belgrade, uh, in Brussels. Uh, next uh, March, we're going to be in Berlin. And so when the Cairo uh, Cairo conference was happening, uh, Cairo being um, basically uh, where, where Amira and I, separate in our separate lives that have come together recently through PCARS, um, kind of grew up either, for me, professionally, I grew up in Egypt. But Amira, literally, you grew up in Egypt, right? I literally grew up in Egypt, yes. I was born in Egypt as, um, but, uh, for a Sudanese family, so I'm a second generation of migrant family who lived in Cairo. Um, and I think that the migration thing is influencing my life. Um, when I started to do my education, that was the area that took me the most. So I spent almost now more than 18 years working in the field of migration and refugees. And I was just saying the other day that 
at that time, the migration and refugee and people who were living in refugee-like the situation, they had their stories. But after the Arab Spring, migration is becoming the story of everybody. So now, I mean, take this example here. Um, Bikars now officially have been Bikars for for really long because before I officially joined, I was part of the of the forum. Um, by my affiliation to Clark University when I was there as a visiting professor teaching the courses for graduate students. So, yes, I mean, this migration, um, the, the studies is not only uh, we're studying the lives of people, but also it's impacting us. Now we go through networks and circles that brings all uh, us all, always back. I'm going back to Cairo for the conference where I grew up literally and professionally as well, mm. because I'm product of the AUC, of the mm. Center of Migration and Refugee Studies. And it's really interesting now to look at that, because every time I come to Boston, I say, I'm going back to Boston, I go to Cairo, I'm going back to Cairo. Mm-hmm. So you keep wondering, where is home yeah. at this moment? Yeah. But just to give you an idea about how I spent, you know, these 18 years, I've been uh, working for local NGOs with African mainly at that time in Cairo, African refugees. And then I moved to academia where I did my PhD, also on migration. Uh, I focus on domestic workers in Cairo. And then I moved to the UN system where I worked at IOM, the International Organization for Migration. And it was a great moment to, to capture when I was in Jordan doing my first job for IOM, because that was the peak of the arrival of Syrian refugees into the country in 2012 and 2013. Of course, up to now, but that was the well, that was the peak of the of uh, of the mountain. So, um, so moving to Egypt, also working with Syrians and and um, and African refugees, and here we are on big cars, reflecting on all that and trying to mm. make sense of our own personal experiences, but also our knowledge in the field and uh, in our academic um, background. Yeah, when you say African refugees, I mean, can give me some details. I know it's Sudanese, it's Eritrean, Ethiopian, Somali. Is that pretty much the... Yeah, you said it all. I think yeah. uh, because, you know, but, but Cairo specific was a huge hub for right. receiving refugees from the Horn of Africa, where you know that the Horn of Africa is the most, you know, war hit, you mm. know, zone in the world. So traditionally, most of the refugees came from African countries, Mm. um, the largest receiving countries, as you can guess, of course, Sudan, you know, uh, but then also Somalia and all these countries that have been suffering, you know, conflicts and failure of states. And I think that the term African refugee came as to um, contrast the arrival of Syrians because this is the largest, I can th- I can say that, the largest uh, non-African uh, refugees who arrived in the country. So now this is the, the I mean, I, I hate that this might create dichotomy, mm-hmm. but this is what we've been using in the practitioner field, African refugees, which, as you said, Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and non-African, mm-hmm. which is Syrians, basically. Yeah. Uh, I want to move uh, to give a little context on Syria again. There, I think everyone knows there's a Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, but let's give it some context. As you mentioned, it started in 2012. The civil war started in 2011, but the, the, the refuge, what we know as the refugee crisis really started uh, in the summer of 2012, and Syrians just started fleeing their borders uh, to Lebanon, to Jordan, to Turkey, and even to the Kurdish region of, of Iraq, and also to Egypt. Uh, Okay, and that's where it's, and and now Sudan. But, you know, initially those were the four or five countries, contiguous countries plus Egypt, which is not contiguous to Syria. But this is where the Syrian populations have become relocated, let's say. Well, now, so just some basic statistics. Uh, The population of Syria pre-Civil War was about 22 million people. We have 5 million people displaced externally i.e. refugees, and we have another seven, potentially eight million Syrians internally displaced. They've, they've fled Aleppo, they've fled Homs, they've fled Damascus, they've fled Dara. And so you have 60% of the Syrian population displaced internally and externally. 
And it was in 2015 when the Syrians started really coming into European shores through Greece and then into Germany that all of a sudden became a crisis. All of a sudden the world paid attention. Whereas we had been looking at it for a couple of years by then, we being B-cars. Um, and now, again, I want to you know thank the great folks at Carnegie Corporation. They, they, they're investing in our studies, in our workshops, in our, uh, our mentoring projects, and really uh, helping us um, get the message out. So as I mentioned, we were uh, in Cairo for a conference on responsibility sharing for refugees in the Euro-Mediterranean space. That's a mouthful, I know, but it was a conference on responsibility sharing, uh, i.e. the global community, but in particular Europe uh, and the UN and the US um, for the refugees that were flowing, that are, are flowing through the Mediterranean and thousands of people have lost their lives over the last several years, just fleeing wars and famines and, and, and civil strife. Uh, it was Our host was the Center for Migration and Refugee Studies at the American University in Cairo. And as BCARS, we were one of a few co-sponsors, the European Union being another one, Ford Foundation another. And we were very proud to be a co-sponsor of this workshop, uh, not only financially, uh, but also with human resources. A number of us were there. Um, the three people you're about to hear from uh, are Karen Abu Zaid, Fatih Azam and Susan Akram, and I'm interviewing them in the Ganeina uh, at Tahrir campus of AUC, the Ganeina being the garden. So you'll hear a lot of birds chirping uh, in the background perhaps, um, but we, um, I insisted that we, we hold this first uh, recorded interview with these three giants in uh, refugee and human rights uh, world uh, in the Ganeina, in the garden at AUC uh, in Tahrir, because it Tahrir is where it started for me. The Ganena, the garden, is where it started for me as a graduate student uh, in 1984, learning or improving my Arabic. Um, and it was also the site of where our conference was, so it was perfect. So let me just tell you, uh, so you'll hear uh, first from Karen Abu Zaid. She has been a UN Special Advisor on Refugees and Migrants. And for, for 19 years, she worked for UNHCR, and just as Amira has, um, UNHCR being the UN's refugee agency. In, that included a, a, a stint in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War, and where Karen was chief of mission. She's also been in the Sudan, Namibia, Sierra Leone, and of course, the Geneva headquarters for UNHCR. Ms. Abu Zaid was Commissioner General of UNRWA. Uh, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees uh, between 2005 and 2010. And since 2011, she has served uh, as a commissioner on the Independent Inquiry Commission on Syria. This is where we are, um, the world community is, is, has a spotlight on the Assad regime, on ISIS, on, uh, on the opposition group too. Any human rights violations, any war crimes, uh, we are documenting those. Uh, and Karen has been a commissioner on that, and, and God bless her for that work. Uh, also on this interview, you'll hear from Fatih Azam. Fatih is a senior policy fellow at the Assam Ferris Institute at the American University in Beirut, uh, AUB. Uh, he was also formerly the director of the Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship at AUB. Was a co he, he was a co-founder of the Arab Human Rights Fund and the regional representative for the Middle East at UNHCR in Beirut. Uh, speaking of the Center for Migration and Refugee Studies, uh, Fatih also had been the director of, the, of that uh, when it was just a program at AUC. He also worked for the Ford Foundation in Cairo. I met him uh, when he was director of Al-Haq, the human rights NGO in Palestine, uh, in Ramallah. Uh, and before that, he was the director of, uh, and he's not here in the room as I record this, but he would be, uh, he would, I would probably get some, um, some grief from him if I didn't mention. He was also director of the Nuzha Hakawati Theater, now the Palestine National Theater. Um, our, our final uh, person uh, that you'll hear from is Susan Akram. Susan uh, is a professor of law at Boston University, specializing in immigration law and policy. Uh, asylum law, forced migration and refugees, especially in the Middle East and the Muslim world. She directs Boston University's International Human Rights Clinic, 
and supervises various students who are engaged in international advocacy for human rights. And since 9-11, since 9-11, 2001, Susan has presented on the USA Patriot Act and immigration-related laws and policies and has worked on resettlement and refugee claims of Guantanamo detainees. Now, collectively, Fatih, Karen, and Susan have nearly 100 years of combined experience and expertise and insights on forced displacement, refugee rights, immigration law, humanitarian assistance, UN and NGO practice in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. I'm honored that our first podcast for BCARS includes these three giants in their respective and related professions. After the brief discussion that we've had uh, together with Karen, Fateh, Susan, and myself, uh, Amir and I will be back uh, to tell you about the next podcast. We're here in Cairo at AUC um, for a, a conference slash workshop on responsibility sharing for refugees. Um, but Karen, let me let me start with you and and Susan, uh, kind of in tandem, because. Um, in many ways, um, in many ways, you're kind of like the spirit or the soul of this conference because of this program for action. Did you realize that? Um, what is the program for action? What's it really? What's it fully called? It's a program for action. It's a roadmap. Now, those are things we've looked at already. The program of action, the roadmap for the, the refugee compact, yeah. which is one of the two major outcomes of the summit, the global summit from last year: a refugee compact and a migration compact. A compact for refugees and a compact for migrants. Huh? So the program of action is something that UNHCR wants to attach to the whole program, and they're working on that with their um, meetings that they pull people together for. And I think it's very important that what's been happening here is more more from the academic and the civil society side. So I've certainly heard a lot of things that aren't in that compact yet, and I think we'll hope we'll get there. We'll be doing a report from this compact, from this uh, meeting, and maybe even more than just a report. Uh, so I think it's going to make a very good cont contribution to really things that can happen, because that's what we want. We want, and not the old things that everybody's been saying for years and have not happened or can't happen without some real how-to. And that's the other thing. We hope that some of the things we say will have attached to them the way to get them done. And Susan, if I can ask you, I mean, we, there's this theme of responsibility sharing. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yes, well, the idea of responsibility sharing, actually it's a development from the old language of burden sharing, viewing refugees as a burden on both host states and states where they might be resettled. And I think we have now moved as a community to being able to appreciate much more the contributions that refugees and migrants make in host communities and resettlement communities. So breaking down those stereotypes of viewing refugees as sort of the other and that host states have to make an effort to accommodate them as a burden uh, and, and flipping that now to seeing what a great advantage accepting refugees and migrants is to host communities. Um, so that's sort of the first piece. The other piece, the legal piece, is about uh, where does the notion of responsibility sharing come from in the whole refugee convention regime? Um, and uh, we have we had a very kind of lively dialogue about whether or not that is a, a clear obligation on states that they recognize, uh, and what is the foundation for that from the legal instruments. Um, and I think uh, I disagreed with uh, with the drafter of the background paper on this particular panel. Uh, she took the position that there's a clear responsibility that comes uh, directly from the preamble of the 1951 Refugee Convention uh, and on uh, customary international law and human rights law uh, that states must uh, share the responsibility for actually hosting refugees, whether they're actual frontline states or they're resettlement states, that there's a shared obligation there that's based in law. And I think my critique of that argument is, I think that's a case that remains to be proved. We don't have a hard provision in the Refugee Convention or Protocol or in any other instrument that places that burden on either host states or on resettlement states as a very clear obligation to grant status mm. to refugees. Uh, and then 
Uh, another problematic from my point of view is that we all start from the premise of Article 14 of the Universal Declaration, which says that everyone has the right uh, to seek asylum and enjoy asylum, but there's the missing middle. No, it doesn't say that they have the right to be granted asylum. So we have some gaps in the law, and yeah. I think there isn't a, a real clear agreement moving forward about how to ground that responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a very important conversation yeah. that I think we were having. Um, and I'll ask Fatih next. So this, um, Karen and I, and, and you on the side a bit, uh, and, and others, we've been kind of drafting a final statement from this workshop conference. I call it workshop or conference because it seems like an academic workshop, uh, academic conference. But I think it was intended as a workshop where practitioners, and academics, researchers, scholars, people on the ground, people in, in the air, in the ivory tower, get together, think about it, but talk about action. So this is where I want to go with you is in this statement, you know, we're talking about how to implement this program for action. How can we do that? I mean, you gave a panel, maybe you could tell us a bit about what your call to action was or any other thoughts that came to you during this, this two-day workshop. Well, it wasn't really very clear from the, from the conference or the, the workshop here uh, that there was a lot of action-oriented kind of discussion yeah. in it. There was a lot of kind of a, uh, surveys and, and, and reports and research about these issues. Mm -hmm. And the issues are many and they're very complex. You talk about health and education, access to labor markets and rights and all of that. Uh, what I tried to do in, in my presentation in the panel is to say, you know, okay, following from what Susan was saying about obligations, that in fact there are already existing state obligations under human rights law. Yeah. And, you know, refugees have the right to benefit from the protections of human rights law wherever they are, you know, in, whichever, in the host states or in, in the or states of origin or, or whatever. And that there is already a, a, a state obligation to guarantee, protect, respect, fulfill human rights for the refugees as for their own citizens and, and anyone else on their territory. Uh, so that needs to be you know, modulated. So maybe my call to action was to, you know, really, uh, given the weakness of enforcement of international human rights law and humanitarian law and refugee law, that there should be you know, kind of a review of that. You know, there should be a consideration from the perspective of state obligations under treaties and, and agreements they have already ratified to, to, to guarantee for refugees a life of dignity. Yeah. That it's not yeah. only about resettlement, it's yeah. not only about status determination right. as refugees, but it's about the daily dignity of life right. uh, and living for refugees. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add uh, my, own, my own thought on this is that, you know, we talk about, talk a lot about rights as we it starts it starts with rights it starts with the rights <laughs> the human rights of these of these people who we call refugees um, and it so it gets to to be very to many people who are not lawyers uh, you know we get we get lost in a lot of the law of, of around human rights and around refugee rights etc so I think you all are helping us clarify that um, uh, the the other issues though are what about education? What about healthcare? What about a house to live in? What about a job? So I'll just pick up on that last one. Uh, one of my favorite panels here was about the access to labor markets in Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Europe, and Egypt. That was the panel. That's what we covered. Of course, we also are talking about Turkey and Iraq and and the United States and and so my if there's two like like bullet points that I want to uh, emphasize is one, it's the right to work uh, and therefore you need the right to access the labor market and Jordan is doing a lot toward that. Uh, it's one of the only, if not one of the few, uh, that's actually doing that and that's with help from the international community and yes, part of it is because they just don't want any more refugees coming to their shores. Fine. But if there's an incentive to provide jobs for Syrians wherever they are, you know, I'm in favor of that. Um, so, and then the other big bullet point I, I want to talk about, uh, or just mention, because we're not going to solve all these problems here, we're not going to solve it here in Cairo over two days, but that's a, the, the question of integration, or the point of it, integration. And uh, again, the statement that Karen and I have been hammering out, not, not with our words, but with everybody else's contributions, is, uh, you know, I was going through the last draft of this, the word integration didn't exist in the statement, so I made sure, you know, 
I, I put it in there because I'm the scribe. So there we are. Um, but if, but even short of integration is the word, at least uh, is the idea of inclusion. So again, I think this is about you know 23 million refugees around the world at least. And uh, how do we include them? How do we integrate them into these communities? Yes, this, this is a worldwide struggle now. This is a global issue. And I'm not going to call it a global crisis. It's a global issue that we all face. And I appreciate how Susan clarified that for me, that it's not burden sharing, it's responsibility sharing. So that's a, that's a good first step. Um, there are many more steps to come, and maybe I can just ask you all to kind of give one more thought before we wrap this portion up. Uh, of this podcast um, and if there is any more takeaways that, that you think and I, I like to end with, with Karen so maybe I go back to Susan and then Fateh and, and then end with Karen Yes. so I want to pick up a couple more of the, of the uh, arguments that have been dynamic in this conference one is the clash between the refugee law regime and the human rights law regime mm-hmm. Uh, because something we're seeing, a phenomenon that we're seeing uh, between the states that are not parties to the Refugee Convention, and the, that is most of the states in the Arab world, and the states in the West and North that are parties to the Refugee Convention, uh, the states that are not parties are bearing the, the majority of the world's refugees today. And the states that are party are placing enormous barriers to prevent refugees from entering. And they are relying on the hyper-legalistic machinery of the refugee regime in order to do that. To basically say that very few people qualify to be refugees and hence we don't have to admit them. And the truth is that only about 1% of the world's refugees are resettled in the north and the western states. So that's a really important dynamic to kind of focus on. The other issue is uh, picking up on what Fateh said uh, in terms of of, uh, enforcement. Um, We have an international organization, the UNHCR, that is mandated to be the supervisor of this convention regime and is mandated, mandated to provide protection and advance the interests of refugees and yet has never made a claim against a state Um, and there is article 38 of the refugee convention which basically says that any state may take another state to the international court of justice for violations of the refugee convention we have two advisory opinions from the international court of justice which say um, one advisory opinion going back to 1949 another more recently in 1999 both of which say that uh, a UN organization stands in the shoes of a state for purposes of the victims that it is mandated to represent. And in these two advisory opinions, the International Court has said very clearly that both the UN can take states to the International Court of Justice for violations of state obligations, and the UN itself can be taken to the International (laughs) Court of Justice for violations of, uh, of its obligations. And here we have Article 38 in the Refugee Convention that basically has never been triggered. No state has sued another state, and the UNHCR has certainly never taken a case to the International Court. So that's just one mechanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can ask the question, isn't this the time to trigger that very powerful mechanism? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Well, I would go back to to the issue of human rights and human rights law and, and Maybe, you know, I think Susan and I maybe have to have a conversation whether there is a clash between human rights law and refugee law. Uh, I, I'm more of the opinion that all of the rights regimes are really one interconnected and interdependent whole. Uh, now, you know, some issue like you know, the refugee law would kick in when special status of refugeehood comes in, but that doesn't negate the continued application of human rights law and the protections of human rights law. So the point that I was making in the the discussion uh, in the panel was you you have access for the protection of refugees and refugee rights to all of the human rights machineries and mechanisms, the treaty bodies, the special procedures, the thematic rapporteurs. There are a number of avenues where you can take cases of protection of refugees. uh, And that could also be uh, another way forward. Awesome. Awesome. Great. 
Thank you. And Karen, if you give us our final word, and then we'll go back into the workshop, and then you can tell everybody what you're about to tell us. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm particularly happy to see that um, refugees and migrants both were being discussed here in some way in the same context and with getting the same rights and so on. Um, and I think that draw, puts together, both together, the two compacts that more or less have gone in different directions to, since, the, since the summit last year. One UNHCR is supposed to take care of them, uh, or the lead, take the lead in, and the other, the uh, Migration Agency and others that uh, are concerned with migration. So to bringing, the, bringing them all together and putting in everything in the human rights con connection, which is also a context which is where we may also get some feedback and some pushback and so on, and to actually take things to a court or something, you know. I think the other agencies are not so used to, to doing that and don't even think about that. And OHCHR does think about that and the, and the organizations associated with that. And that's uh, partly coming now from my association with the Syria Commission, the, the Commission of Inquiry on Syria, is that we, we've spent six years and not taken it anywhere yet because we keep saying it needs to go to the criminal court or it needs to go to an ad hoc tribunal and nothing's happening. But now there's a new mechanism. so. Uh, there's, there's always hope. We can think we're doing things over and over. We're not getting anywhere like we are thinking we don't have the action. This is one of the things we wanted to come out of this conference, too, is that we have all these things that we think we should must do, but how, how to do them. We didn't want to have another document that said all the same things we've heard before. We want to have things that can be done and how. And so we hope that we can take that next step after this and whether it's a report that comes out of the conference and maybe a follow-up conference that is going to, to take things even further. Thank you all. Susan, Akram, Fateh, Azam, Karen Abouzaid, thank you all very yes. much. And uh, my pleasure to be really having, inaugurating our BCARS, our BCARS, I'm going to call it the BCARS, the BCARS podcast because there's no P <laughs> in, in Arabic and why not? Uh, why not? Thank you all. <laughs> So after that great conversation we had in the beautiful garden of the American University in Cairo, we all went inside for the final panel of the conference. Uh, at that final panel, Karen Abouzaid led um, a discussion uh, presenting a number of uh, recommendations. Um, again, you'll find this whole document on our website. Uh, the recommendations she discussed are directed at UNHCR. Um, and she refers specifically to the program of action. Uh, the program of action is really the second part of this UNHCR document that, uh, that is called Towards a Global Compact on Refugees. So again, the whole premise of our conference in Cairo was discussing how Europe, the Mediterranean region, the international community can share responsibility for refugees. And the next step is this program of action. So these are the recommendations we're, uh, we're, we're, we've issued, and she is uh, targeting these directly to the UNHCR. So the program of action should reiterate the importance of uh, foundational principles of international cooperation, responsibility sharing, of course, and durable solutions. And it must reiterate the uh, need to respect international law, international refugee law, international human rights law, and non-reformment. The program of action should also acknowledge the complex uh, and manifold root causes of contemporary forced migration, including economic inequality, environmental change, and conflict, and reiterate the determination of UN member states to address the root causes and learn from past and present refugee situations. <coughs> It should recognize that the complexity of contemporary forced migration requires measures for the protection of individuals moving in mixed migration flows where displacement is caused by the multiple factors, including, again, conflict, economic, and environmental pressures. It's worth repeating these things so that everyone gets the point who is not as familiar as all of you are with, with the issues. Um, the early warning of potential displacement would greatly improve uh, improve preparedness and response. To this end, early warning expert groups should be set up that include in their memberships uh, academics, research, and representatives of relevant uh, civil society organizations and uh, non-government organizations 
I think those are the same, but we have them as two separate groups, and some of you might feel that they belong that way. Um, anyway, um, so I, I think this is an interesting new idea that we have a set up some some researchers and academics and experts who uh, will look at uh, early warning ideas, how you can do that and choose where to do that and why and how and or be on the alert for where it needs to be done. Uh, it must emphasize the humanitarian aspects of refugee situations, especially the large movements, and it should oppose their securitization. I know there have been some discussions on this and there which has negatively affected responsibility sharing, because that's the basis of what we're trying to get to. With respect to international law and the rule of law, the program of action should particularly call for refraining from taking exceptional measures, and I think some of you asked what were those, ones we put in are such as the curfews and restricted mobility in dealing with refugee situations. I guess there were further discussions on you know, curfews. If curfews are for the nationals, they can be for the refugees too, or the migrants as well, but anyway, that, it's not just to be for those groups. Uh, the act, program of action should emphasize the importance of countering hate, uh, hate speech and xenophobia against refugees in the media and in public discourse. It should call on all UN member states to formulate and implement effective policies in this respect. Refugees can and should participate in media production to help shape their own images, their own stories, and the knowledge that they and others should have about them themselves. Temporary protection schemes, this is another one there was some discussion about in our two days, um, should not be used in lieu of the refugee protections states are obliged to provide under the 51 Convention. Where such temporary protection schemes are utilized, they should be institutionalized along the lines of the best practices of UN member states. They should particularly not detract from human rights obligations, including non-discrimination. The basis for sharing responsibility should include, among other things, state contribution to causing displacement, GDP per capita, size of the country, population volume and density, number of refugees in the country, and the quality of infrastructure. So that'll be a good one to try to get action on get some countries to contribute to the other countries that need it. Responsibility uh, mechanisms should also be based on, based on the dignity and free movement of refugees, refraining from any arrangements that treat refugees as tradable commodities or diminish their voice and agency. I was looking for some uh, substitute words for tradable commodities. I know we use it, but... Um, um, if we can think of a, a nicer way to refer to refugees as than commodities, although we're talking about not using the words, see, not using the concept anyway. A truly people-centered approach uh, providing international protection to refugees must fully incorporate the freedom of movement of refugees, including those whose refugees whose status has not, has not yet to be determined by the host country. With this in mind, um, we recommend that the program of action include reference to the following. These are some newer things that should go in that aren't apparent yet. The freedom of movement of refugees is a pillar of the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, uh, explicitly stated in Article 26. Freedom of movement of refugees not only allows them access to opportunities in other countries and increases their prospects of becoming self-reliant and providing durable solutions, it also improves the sharing of responsibility among member states of the United Nations. Back to that. With the view to concretizing their commitment to ensure that refugee admission policies or arrangements are in line with their obligations under international law, states must not only ease administrative barriers, but also dismantle non-administrative barriers such as the concepts of first country of asylum, That'll be a discussion. And safe third countries that directly undermine the normative content of the international refugee protection regime and exacerbate unequal responsibility sharing for refugee protection. Responsibility sharing mechanisms should include large-scale resettlements so as to keep refugee situations from turning into protracted ones. We have a lot of those to deal with, too. Alongside the adoption of new resettlement programs, existing resettlement processes should be expanded and expedited. Resettlement states should envisage the expansion of other temporary or permanent admission programs, such as those of humanitarian, sponsorship, family reunification, and emergency and student visas. So the ones that are already doing something should do more. 
Beneficiaries from refugees responsibility sharing mechanisms should include all UN member states, whether or not they are parties to particular international law instruments. And again, we can remind the member states, and I think that's something we have to do. They've all signed up to this, 193. They signed to the summit declaration, the New York declaration. So all of them make a deal. We say that, you know, one country can receive a few refugees if we want to talk about resettlement. And the other countries that can take more can take lots more, but um, every country should be able to contribute something. Responsibility sharing should not be confined to regions where refugee flows are generated, which often consist of developing states already hosting large numbers of refugees. Responsibility sharing commitments of states outside the relevant regions should not, ab initio, be confined to financial contributions, but also include large resettlement programs, such as those that were implemented in the 1990s. And so it's good to be reminded of some of those. It was possible then, should be even more possible now. Global responsibility sharing of this kind will help bordering host states ensure better protection at smaller numbers or if refugees will remain in their territories. I'm getting close to the end, if you're patient. Although refugee and mixed migration flows cannot be reduced to questions of smuggling and trafficking, combating these being necessary through a comprehensive approach focused on prosecution of smugglers and trafficking, and traffickers and focusing on the protection of victims. The program of action should emphasize that allowing people to exercise their right to seek asylum and increasing the admission of refugees through resettlement and other visa programs are the most effective means of combating smuggling. Just a reminder. The program of action should focus on children and their need for education. Immediately enrolling them in school within 30 days, good try, of entering a host country. Similarly, health care should be placed foremost on the agenda of the program. In short, the approach and the goal is to fully integrate refugees into the societies that host them, starting with housing, health care, and education. Where full integration is not possible, there should be no compromise on the dignity and inclusion of refugees in their host communities. The program of action, and this is the last one, paragraph 22, should include concrete, legal, and support measures to facilitate the access of refugees to labor markets, to enable them to provide for themselves and their families, and reduce the burden on host countries. Beneficiaries of these efforts should include host communities. International cooperation is key to these efforts. Full stop. Well, for more on the, the conference and the thoughts uh, collectively of all of the attendees, uh, please go to our website, bcars-global.org, and look under our publications tab. So bcars-global, i.e. bcarsglobal.org, with the hyphen in the middle. Uh, while, while I'm at it, uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at bcars underscore Boston. Again, bcars underscore Boston. And on Facebook at BCARS, you know, just Google Boston Consortium or, or search for Boston Consortium. Uh, so on our website, we'll have uh, we'll have a, a, a the the conference concluded with um, a, dra a, a drafted and crafted statement by all the participants, uh, and and the conclusions made and some specific policy recommendations. That's um, always our goal is. Um, to, to really put in the minds of um, those with money and power in the international community to do something more than they're doing because they're not doing enough collectively. We are not doing enough collectively. So we have a lot of um, recommend recommendations on, on micro and macro um, levels. So please uh, look for that. Uh, we've posted it on our website. Doing these uh, co-sponsored workshops and bringing people together from the practitioner level, the policy level, the academic level, again, different generations, um, next generation, so to speak, young scholars, young practitioners with more senior people such as myself and, and many other colleagues within BCARS. I mean, that's what we do. So that alone means that this workshop, uh, sorry, this conference was a was a major success for us in, BCAR, in the BCARS family. Again, the BCARS family includes AUC. Uh, it's a founding member of BCARS, just as AUB in Beirut is. 
uh, and we're ever expanding our network. If you're interested in joining our network uh, as a scholar, as a practitioner, uh, and if you're a policymaker in particular and you want us to advise you in any way and have us learn from your perspective as well, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, uh, Dennis Sullivan at d.sullivan at northeastern.edu. Uh, Amira, your final thoughts on this before we talk about the next podcast. What, what did you leave with or what did you take away uh, from this? I think it was a great forum. It was really fascinating to see scholars and practitioners and refugees and migrants coming from different domains and from different perspectives, but also from different geographies. It was really fascinating to see people coming from Egypt, from Jordan, from Europe and also from the US coming sitting together in one um, forum talking about issues related to refugees. I think the most important thing about that is we're able to update ourselves and what's happening um, on the scholarship of migration and refugees, but also to identify the problematic issues. And also the, the added value of that workshop is that we sat down with practitioners who are the frontliners who work with refugees and we try to make sense of our studies and our research into a coherent, meaningful policy that makes the life of migrants and refugees easier. So um, the workshop, I think, in my opinion, served various levels, the very sophisticated, abstract, theoretical level, and but also that was combined by policymakers from Probably, um, I can't remember if we had people represent for governments, but I'm sure we had some senior officials, at least from the UN system, like Karen Abouzaid and others. So um, I think we need more of that, probably for next time, um, because it seems that, you know, we're busy trying, we're just in this with time, trying to discuss so many things. So I would really love to see step two for mm -hmm. that, where we can sit down and do some exercise and yeah. translate what we are doing again into action and yeah. into policies. Yeah. Yeah. We always squeeze, we try to squeeze too many things into too few a days or too few hours. Uh, and yet what we do is good. It's, as I just said about the international community, it's never good enough given the, the state of the crisis. And again, I, as a, as a student of refugee studies and a student of refugees and humanitarian action for them, uh, that's one of my constant takeaways for the last several years of, of studying this is that there, the, the need is ever expanding. Uh, there are more refugees today than since World War II, since at any time in, since World War II. And that trend, sadly, is, is growing and continuing. And so Europe has had to retrench a bit, not completely, thankfully, but the, the, the world's in retrenchment rather than expansion when it comes to figuring out how to take care of refugees, take care of um, migrants, whether they're refugees yet or not. So again, those are for other podcasts. So please, why don't you tell us um, what is the next podcast all about? What do we have planned? Uh, and uh, I want to say that by we, it's not just you and me. I want to just give a shout out to uh, Allison Hawkins, who's our new assistant director for BCARS. And she's really just been uh, the one behind the scenes uh, really helping us uh, make make this podcast a reality. Uh, so shout out to, to Allie. Uh, and um, you can also email her at a.hawkins, H-A-W-K-I-N-S, at northeastern.edu. So, Amira, what do you and Allie uh, have planned for our next podcast? Um, well, the, the Pope Francis said um, refugees and, and migrants are not dangerous they are in danger and as much as i appreciate what we have said in this um, podcast which is very very important and as you know dennis we were planning also to bring the voices of migrants and refugees but probably for the sake of time we decided mm -hmm. to have it in uh, another podcast so this yeah. is our next podcast we're oh gonna... ali just walked in hey <laughs> ali welcome we're just saying nice Mira. nice things about you <laughs> Um, thank yeah. you for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for getting us going. <laughs> and actually, Ali was also with us in the in Cairo yeah. conference, that great conference. And uh, we had the opportunity, the two of us, to work um, to get first hand insights, right? From uh, 
the migrants and refugee community and people working with them in Cairo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And for me, I thought this was the most interesting part of the whole experience yeah. being in Cairo um, was to see, you know, the conference and hear from the policy side and academics, but also having that paired with the perspectives of refugees and migrants that Amira connected us with um, for focus groups. So the next podcast is just going to take those perspectives and serve almost as the other side of the coin to this podcast. Um, so we'll be hearing you know, our perspectives from the interviews that we had with. Yeah, we're going to take you next time in the next podcast to sit down with refugees and listen yeah. to what you're doing, how they spend their everyday life, what are the issues that, you know, um, needs to be improved in their everyday life in, in Cairo. So I think that's very important. That's very precious because any work, whether it's a research work or a policy that doesn't fully incorporate the voices of refugees with really be irrelevant so we took the advantage of being in Cairo we Mm. used our time I think in the best way going Mm. to NGOs working with refugees also interviewing individual refugees so Mm -hmm. hopefully next time we'll hear all Mm -hmm. this interesting and important perspectives and and I just want to add that I was blessed to be with you for one of those days Uh, sadly I I didn't have enough time that that you all had uh, to do to do extra days uh, but as Ali just said, it, that's really the best. That's really the best part of uh, of our um, our activities and our and our actions is to sit with refugees, to hear their stories. Uh, w- one goal we have, um, with a caution, one goal we have is in our podcast, in our BCARS publications, is to give more voice to those refugees rather than us talk. We don't. We cannot speak for them by any means, but we can do our part in, in whatever way we can to to raise the issues, but also in hopes that they have more voice and have more power and more authority and more agency over their own lives, uh, at the same time being cautious about protecting them because they are very vulnerable uh, communities. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. Uh, we, we here at BCARS do everything we can to um, err on the side of caution and protection uh, and help. I want to thank you, Amira. I want to thank you, Ali, as well, for um, for starting this off together. I mean, we're a BCARS team, and uh, there's a lot more people in our network, but uh, we, you, you two are the core uh, of what we do and what I can do, and I, I want to thank you for that. So thank you all, and do send us your comments and feedback in any way possible, and stay tuned for the next one. Thank you. Thank you.